1: Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn
0: to Get Your Guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech.
2: AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb,
3: and I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And in this episode, we're talking about sound, which is uh, which is good because uh, this podcast is uh, is sonic by its very nature.
3: That's right. It is a sound that is traveling into your ear holes, and hopefully it's pleasant. But we wanted to talk about sound more as an aspect of art and spirituality and, and, and even a soundscape that exists within nature and the ways in which humans have um, interacted with that.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic, and a lot of it really just gets down to the heart of how do we interact with our world? Uh, What is our sense experience of the world? And what is our, 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 our our listening experience of the world? How do we take in the soundscape around us? Uh, How do we deal with artificial soundscapes? We live in a world of just over, overpowering access to soundscapes. You can go online and you can find just about anything in the natural or unnatural world to listen to and you can stream it right into your head.
3: Well, and then there's just environmental sounds around us, um, and you had mentioned this earlier. We really take for granted the fact that we can manipulate sound around us so easily.
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean, any given structure, any kind of artificial creation that we've made, or any manipulation of a natural environment, in, in, in you know, we're we're adjusting the way that we hear the world. You grow some hedges, great. You've you've just uh, recreated the uh, sonic experience of your environment. You build a house, same thing. You build a cathedral, same thing.
3: Yeah, these are more like analog examples of the sort of technology that we have at our disposal today. Yeah. But what if you were ancient man, ancient human back in the day, and you had only... The, your surroundings to really play with sound. And you had some instruments, okay? Yeah. Uh, but you had your hands to clap with, and you had things to bounce that sound off of. And that's where something like caves become incredibly interesting.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, especially in... We were just talking about how the environment outside of our office space is essentially an artificial canyon. Mm-hmm. And then there's an artificial river of roaring traffic and all of this the the, the this stuff. And it's it's just easy to... To, to take all of it for granted and just uh, to, to overlook the manipulation of sound that's going on. But yeah, but imagine yourself in a time where you have just this this natural landscape and the, the the soundscape that exists on top of it, and then you encounter this cave. What happens when you encounter this cave, assuming nothing jumps out of it and eats you? Uh, I mean, just the, the <laughs> sensory of experience of a cave is overwhelming. I mean, we I, I feel like today we still realize that uh, in, in terms of, our sight, in terms of uh, of the, uh, the the tightness of the space, I mean, mm-hmm. it's still the stuff of horror movies the and and uh, yeah, but 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 just think about it also from the, the the point of view of sound.
3: Now, this is something that really uh, arrested the imagination of Esther Ingle Arkell writing for Io Nine, and she talks about the novel A Passage to India by E.M. Forster, mm-hmm. and in this novel. Uh, there's something called the Malabar Caves. And she says they're deep and they're complicated. And any noise made inside of them, from the scrape of a match to the squeak of a boot heel, comes back as thunderous noise. The sound of the caves drive two British women temporarily mad. And this, this whole idea really captured her imagination. And so... She says to her internal disappointment, <laughs> um, these caves, which are based on the Balabar Caves, do not have the power to drive people into altered states of mind with sound. But she says, hey, it does turn out that there are actually some caves around the world that do.
1: Oh, and, and before you think, oh, well, that's just some sort of crazy fictional creation, though. I mean, it did serve a literary point. She points this out in her article that uh, it's, it's really about uh, the... The uh, the the coming revolution in India the mm-hmm. uh, the gap between the understanding of uh, uh, the Indians and uh, the British uh, so it, it it works it's not just E.M. Forrester making stuff up and putting it in the book
3: no it's a nice narrative yeah. technique to talk about the unknown
1: but but then if you actually set out to find that cave you would be somewhat disappointed
3: you would be very disappointed but if you are an archaeoacoustic researcher. You probably would know of several caves, but uh, in order to get to those caves, we have to talk about what archaeoacoustics is in the first place.
1: Yes. On a very simple level, this is just the study of sound in an archaeological context. Um, As simple as... Here's an archaeological site. Mm-hmm. We've put a lot of effort into what does it look like, what did it look like back in the day, reconstructing it, reading any signs and symbols on it, and figuring out what what things were were meant to symbolize. But then uh, when you get into archaeoacoustics, it's also how did this place sound? What was the sound experience of this space? And when you start talking about the sound experience of a, of, of a space, I realize that can sound a little bit new agey and hippy-dippy and just try and eject that from your mind as much as possible. Because, uh, again, just to, to bore it down, the sound experience of a space is vital. Uh, sound is sure. an important sensory experience. And it uh, I think it, it's obvious that it would be, if, if not the primary driving factor in the creation of, uh, of, of these ancient sites, it certainly is a factor in the experience of those sites.
3: Yeah, so it definitely is a relationship of the sensory world and the human and that monument or that natural... Um, area in which the person is sitting in, but they also measure the acoustic parameters of a place by the use of electronic instrumentation. So they are trying to figure out uh, the physics of sound here and how it's playing out. Now, some would take issue with the field of archaeoacoustics.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you really get down to it there's not a lot of science to back it up a lot of this uh, not to say there there have there have not been studies and there there are not some some fascinating findings and we'll get into some of that but at heart a lot of it breaks down to us trying to put ourselves in the mindset and in the sense experience Mm -hmm. of uh, increasingly early humans um and when we're also, when we're talking about the sounds that an environment makes, that uh, an artificial uh, environment makes, or even a, an augmented one such as a decorated cave, we're talking about uh, percussion, we're talking mm-hmm. about the ringing of rocks, we're talking about echoes, and we're even talking about uh, wind, water, and heat expansion sounds. Uh, any kind of, of sounds that, can, that are a part of that environment. But yeah, as I believe uh, U.S. Uh, researcher Stephen Waller points out, um, and he's one of the primary uh, uh researchers we're going to talk about here. Um a lot of this is about considering the physiological and mental effects of sound and how we use and have used and continue to use ritual to generate altered mind states and aid visualary visual experience. And again today we have access to all of these soundscapes artificial and uh... and natural we have all you know you can put in any kind of uh... ambient or high-energy album to to augment your headspace uh... but in earlier times that wasn't an option
3: yeah and i think the main issue with archaeoacoustics is again uh... the interpretation so yeah you can hear uh... various soundscapes in nature and in a cave for instance and uh... there may be some symbolism to accompany it but i think that the um that the thing that's being levied against archaeoacoustics is that we are pattern recognition machines. Mm-hmm. So just because we see a correlation here doesn't necessarily mean that there is a causation. In other words, that people were uh, manipulating sound intentionally in these spaces for ceremonial p- uh, purposes, for instance. Now, Esther Engel-Arcus writes, although the idea is not proved or even provable, I do like it. It indicates there is a gulf between two mindsets, not separated by geographical distance, but by time. Two people standing in the same spot and experiencing the same phenomenon will perceive them completely differently. For one person, the experience is a hallucinatory moment, bringing together sound, vision and religion, while the other will just see some pictures without taking note of anything else.
1: Yeah, that, that's well put. And it, it reminds me of um, Jerusalem syndrome a bit, which we've, uh, we've discussed mm-hmm. uh, in our uh, Stendhal syndrome episode about the, the impact of art and, and also um, historical sites on the person. And so much of it is subjective, what information you're bringing into it with mm-hmm. it, your own personal history, your mythological or religious interpretation of the world. Um, and, uh, and certainly a lot of that is, is at play here.
3: Yeah. And so it kind of boils down to this. In archaeoacoustics, mm-hmm. it could very well be that there just happened to be a soundscape that worked really well with symbolism and ceremony. Or it could be that uh, the culture at that time really was trying to manipulate those areas and have it work with their mindsets of how the world worked. So w- we're never going to get to a definitive answer here. It definitely is the, the chicken or the egg argument.
1: Yeah, and, and I can see where it's a hard sell for someone to to... To at least interpret some of this uh, this effort uh, as oh well they're saying that Stonehenge or um, you know or, or or this cave or that cave uh, exists primarily as an historic site because it changed the way people heard sounds. Um, I can see where that would be difficult. That would be like saying well Stonehenge exists because people like the way it tasted. You know it's it we're so we have such a visual mindset anyway. But but when you create a what is it ultimately a sacred site? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like any way that that site augments your sensory experience would be important to the people who made it
3: and important to study as well
1: yeah yeah and and again artificial buildings uh, artificial constructions they change the environment they change the uh, the micro environment as we've discussed in previous podcasts but also just as in terms of sound you walk into a cathedral you walk into a, um, into, into a, a Greek amphitheater uh, the sound changes your sound experience of this space is different. Uh, than it would be at at an unaugmented portion of the earth.
3: Well, and one thing, too, that I didn't mention is that one of the uh, criticisms levied against archaeoacoustics is this bias that early humans were not sophisticated enough to really understand that sound could be manipulated. Hmm. So you could say, oh, yes, in a Greek amphitheater, that's totally intentional, right? Yeah. But someone might take issue with it in a cave. Yeah. So that's something to consider.
1: Yeah, but but it, but then it also kind of comes down to someone saying, well, early man couldn't possibly appreciate the fact that the cave is changing the way it sounds. Come out like that's that's ludicrous. So, uh, so I you know, they they feel like they're two sides to it.
3: Indeed. All right, let's take a quick break and when we get back, we're going to talk about spring galleries. Hey Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Oh, and OMG,
4: you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well.
2: craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheartradio's iheartcountry radio discover more shows and movies for free hey this is jody sweeten from the podcast how rude tanneritos as a nostalgic voice from your past i'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024 you deserve to get away It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai
5: Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A
1: All right, we're back, and uh, we're headed to Chichen Itza.
3: Yes, an ancient Mayan site with a ball court, which sounds really sporty of them, right?
1: Yeah, you sound like you're, uh, you're showing real estate right now.
3: I know, and I feel like it's a 1920s property too, and look, this is a ball court where they would wear their white outfits and play tennis, but in fact, that is not at all what this ball court was about.
1: No, no, this, uh, this whole site, thousand years old, and, uh, uh, you have a core to this is you have the, the pyramid, uh, the kind of, uh, Ziggurat-ish Mayan mm-hmm. uh, pyramid that, uh, uh, I'll try to include a, a picture of this with the uh, landing page for this episode, uh, because you really have to look at it to, to get into everything that we're talking about here. But, uh, you have this pyramid, you have this ball court, and indeed they are not playing, uh, basketball here. This is a, a life and death game that is, uh, that is occurring.
3: Yeah, Um just let's foreground this and the fact that the Mayans were really big on sacrifice. And we yes. think of sacrifice as this terrible Cultural thing, but if you happen to live uh, during that time in the Mayan culture, then it would be uh, you would have very high stature if you were someone who were who was going to be sacrificed. Your family would be held in high esteem. So the the culture was revolved around this idea, and so you have a ball court, which sounds like a sporty, fun thing, but in fact, it's this this field where the drama of life is being played out, and it was first ex- excavated in 1920 by archaeologist Sylvanus Morley. Um, it's 541 feet long and 240 feet wide. And it is the largest in Mesoamerica with walls on two sides and small temples at either end.
1: And I also just want to throw in that if anyone's saying, looking at this, you know, brutal sport, it's, uh, I mean, ultimately all sports are just mock wars anyway. And maybe this is just a little more, uh, honest sport.
3: Yeah the idea behind this that I, that I've seen is that um again it was a life and death game that was played and the person who won actually offered his head to be executed again this is <laughs> because <laughs> uh, in, in this mindset you know it would be a great honor to to sacrifice yourself so um keep that in mind because th- I'm going to go back to the structure of this the temples actually formed a whispering gallery, the amplified sounds spoken within them. And you can stand in this temple, or by the temple side. Again, you've got two walls on either side and then temples on either side. And you can speak in a low voice, and you can be heard distinctly at the end of the court, 500 feet away. And the idea, at least according to David Lubman, who's one of the researchers probing the acoustic properties of ancient sites, is that... Um, The Mayans could create other sounds, not just whispering. They could do a whooping bird flying from right to left. Mm -hmm. And he said that the priests could also make sounds uh, that sounded like fierce animals, like rattlesnakes and jaguars. Again, this is spectacle. This is life and death. And uh, it would make sense that these whispering galleries would help to sort of ratchet up the suspense
1: yeah and uh it 's also worth noting here just to to really get down to uh, what the Mayans were doing with their buildings and how they were manipulating perception uh, the The pyramid temple um, with its uh, again with its step like sides mm-hmm. uh, if you're viewing this um, and, and you're and you're viewing it in the uh, starting in the spring equinox. Uh, time when the, the day and night are at equal lengths, You'll, you can see a shadow glide down the temple steps and over several days transform into different shapes as it moves across the courtyard. And most scholars believe that this, uh, this shadow represents the feathered Mayan god, Kukulkan. So if they're manipulating shadow and light, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's any great stretch to imagine them manipulating sound as well.
3: Yeah, and the the fact of the matter is, too, is that this is all sort of one big um, ceremonial celestial marker wrapped up in one, as you say, with sound, with light. And it would make sense that this is probably one of the most important areas in which life is playing out in Mayan culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a sense, this is the center of their universe. You know, Mm -hmm. this is the center of their culture. Uh, And and they have all of their their mythology wrapped up uh, in it and around it. So, yeah.
3: So you can find whispering galleries throughout the world. Uh, Grand Central Station in New York is one, an unintentional one, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah. The arches help uh, to create this sonic illusion. You can whisper in one area and be heard another. Uh, let me see the oh St. Paul's Cathedral in London, mm-hmm. and the Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol Building. And apparently, when I was doing this research, this is a, a sort of a unique way for someone to propose marriage. Huh? Yeah.
1: There you go. Using uh the sacred aspects of the uh, the site however uh, unintentional to uh, to take part of a, of a, of a in a, a sacred uh, ritual
3: yeah it's kind of you know a romantic notion to know that your your uh, ask for marriage i suppose is traveling along in this very intimate way yeah across space and time to your beloved's ear
1: all right now we're going to travel to a uh, far different uh, Structure, in fact, a natural structure, uh, and that's the Lascaux caves, uh, and these are, uh, of course, located in France. You'll recognize the pictures, uh, ancient, ancient uh, illustrations of animals on the wall, uh, you know, very stereotypical cave paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, a jaunt back in time, far beyond the mere uh, you know, thousand years ago of the uh, the Mayan example we were discussing.
3: Yeah, Werner Herzog actually documented them in his film *Cave of Forgotten Dreams*. And in it, you see herds of aurochs, bulls, and horses depicted running along the walls. There's Mm -hmm. a sense of motion. And that is important in terms of archaeoacoustics. Stephen Waller of the research lab Rock Art Acoustics believes that the echoes of ritual clapping outside the cave would have sounded like hundreds of hooves drumming on the ground. There you go
1: yeah he said that uh he also points out that, that many different ancient ancient cultures uh, attributed thunder in the sky to hoofed thunder gods so in in that sense it it makes perfect sense that the reverberation within the caves uh would be interpreted as thunder and inspired paintings of those same different uh, hoofed uh, entities right there on the cave wall,
3: yeah, and what's really cool about this is that it enhances the experience now you're painting with sounds, right? you're yeah. not just Depicting life, you're you're using the acoustics to really ramp up the experience, and especially if you're looking at it in a ceremonial sense. And we've talked about how the rhythmic clapping is really important in cultures. First of all, it's something that uh, that will coordinate the synapses for everybody, right? So yeah, it's sort yeah. of this group inclusion thing to clap. But second of all, it's something that is um, intrinsic, To ceremonies, so if you're trying to get everybody together and dance and song and to tell stories, then clapping is really important.
1: Yeah, everyone's looping up, synapses firing at the same time, getting in the same head zone. You know, in this, I can't help but be reminded of contemporary artist Anish Kapoor, who Mm -hmm. does uh, all these you know wonderful, uh, often large scale sculptures. But there is a mirror piece, uh, a concave mirror at uh, the High Museum here in Atlanta. And you stand before it, and you move around in front of it, and, of course, the mirrors alter how you appear and those around you appear, but it also plays with sound. And you can you can have one person stand a little closer and a little person uh, stand a, a little further back from it, and uh, it, it alters the way you hear each other. So the idea of creating art and sound, um, visual art, and sonic art all wrapped up into one uh, has been with us for a long time, it would seem.
3: Yeah, especially if you consider symbolic thought. And uh, this this was actually brought to light pretty recently that Homo sapiens are not the only ones who are capable of symbolic thought. And researchers this year discovered a shell engraved with a geometric pattern at H. erectus site known as Trinil on the Indonesian island of Java, and that dates to between 540,000 and 430,000 years ago. I bring this up because it becomes an important aspect of how we order the world, okay? We need symbols. Symbols are the basis of language. Mm -hmm. So if you have cave art, if you have sound acoustics interplaying with that, then you also have this ability to kind of take hold of abstract thought Mm -hmm. and actually change behavior based on symbolism. And some would even argue that symbolic thought has ushered in morality or codes of living. So that's why I think it's so important for all this stuff to be considered as being wrapped up as sort of one thing and not necessarily teased out as its own.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's nothing ancient aliens about this idea. I mean, it it gets right down to the heart of, what humans are and what has allowed humans, and conceivably could have allowed Neanderthal or Homo erectus uh, to ascend to the heights that they have.
3: Indeed. Hey Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented
2: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeart Radio's iHeart Country Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tateritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024. So get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai.
5: uh,
3: which would bring us to Stonehenge, because there couldn't be you know anything more enigmatic wrapped up in a mystery mm-hmm. and then pierced with a tiny plastic sword of confusion
1: yeah, I than feel like Stonehenge. We, is that what we did in our two episodes? Did we pierce it with the tiny sword of confusion? So many yeah.
3: swords of confusion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but I think
3: it, that speaks to how complex it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stonehenge really resonates with everyone because it is this this amazing site that clearly has a lot of thought involved in it, a lot of, of mental construction and symbolism, and we are often at pains to really understand what it meant from a modern perspective. Uh, a lot of great work has gone into it, and we have a lot of great, uh, great answers now uh, to what uh, went into it at different phases. And uh, some of the ideas out there do evolve uh, around the way Stonehenge sounded as well as looked.
3: Yeah, and um, as we had discussed before, this Stonehenge is something that has been in the works for hundreds and hundreds of years. So think about all those people, all those generations adding to it, um, adding symbolic layers to it as well. And you get to the soundscape of it, and that becomes a very interesting aspect of it as well. Uh, Waller, in the October 2012 edition of Journal of the Acoustical Society of America, and Waller at the time was acting as an independent scholar, he details how the shape of Stonehenge mimics the patterns of positive and negative interference produced by two sources of sound, an auditory illusion that may have been imbued with something that sounded like otherworldly significance by a culture that didn't necessarily understand the physics of the phenomenon, but sort of understood that there was something happening.
1: Yeah, he says that uh, Stonehenge might have worked as kind of a giant sound wave interference filter, and and the interference here occurs when when these we have two instruments that would would play at the same at, at the same time at the same note. Each creates sound waves that have alternating high and low pressure segments. So when the high and low pressure segments collide, they cancel each other out.
3: Now, Waller asked blindfolded participants to do this, to basically move around in a circle with two pipers playing notes in a field.
1: I wonder if this was expressed on the, the call-out for study participants. Hey, we were doing a scientific study. We need you to walk <laughs> around blind- blindfolded in Stonehenge yeah. while people play pipes.
3: I know. It sounds <laughs> like the plot for, like, this is final top part yeah. two, you, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, that or, or the wicker man or something. It, it doesn't sound like it's going to end well.
3: <laughs> no, it doesn't uh but but they were asked to do this and uh they they were uh, the listeners were taken through spaces where the sound is amplified and spaces where the sound waves collide out of phase and are muted so loud quiet loud quiet and so on and so on so they did this And he reported that um, the same sort of auditory effect was happening here when he compared it to Stonehenge and the Piper Stones Mm -hmm. um, and also what would have been in place. Because remember, Stonehenge right now is not complete. It's just sort of um, a shell of itself.
1: Indeed, Stonehenge as it stands today is incomplete. So if if you're going to study the uh, acoustics of Stonehenge, sometimes you have to actually uh, work with... uh, Fake stone hinges as well, as we'll see in this study of Dr. Bruna Facinda of the University of Salford in the U.K., this guy like uh like Waller, studying the acoustics of Stonehenge, but since uh the original Stonehenge is incomplete, uh some of the stones are toppled, uh and also didn't have access uh, to uh electric generators that would be needed to run the equipment, they turned to the World War One memorial of Stonehenge replica in Mary Hill Museum uh in Washington State here in the United States. Uh so which which is interesting to think of studying this this ancient location by 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 using this as well as uh, a World War I uh, memorial. Um, I'm glad they didn't use Car Hinge or any of the the other iterations that we've seen. Car Hinge,
3: yeah. And didn't they uh, pop balloons, I believe?
1: I believe so, yeah.
3: Um, And the reason is because they couldn't bring in electricity, so they were trying to just do some some auditory noises that they could then determine the decay rate of energy and figure out um, the energy time curves at measured positions. Now, the study's conclusion is that Stonehenge was a reflective environment in which any sound is made to reverberate due to the flat, hard surfaces. So we're talking about a one-second reverberation time.
1: Yeah, and that would certainly be enough to be noticeable by anybody that's entering into the circle. Uh, and it's uh, it's also an optimal reverberation time for large lecture halls, uh, ensuring that uh, a good speech is uh, interpreted uh, intelligibly by those uh, in the vicinity.
3: Right. So, you know, again, we are not exactly certain how it was used, mm-hmm. why it was used. But it's very obvious that there was that that time lapse and sound and that the person entering that space might have uh, experienced whatever it was, ceremonial or otherwise, at an elevated level, an altered state, given all the other uh, data and stimuli and meaning surrounding it.
1: Indeed. Um, now you pointed out the the flat hard surfaces, and uh, it, this takes me back. I believe it was was Waller who pointed out that at times uh, they could actually find art in caves by clapping and hearing where the reverberation was coming. That's from, right. right. Yeah. And so you you end up getting into that sort of chicken and egg, right? Uh, did they did they paint uh, this uh, this this horned beast on this uh, on this hard flat surface because it's easier to paint things on a hard, flat surface, and yeah. it's kind of the, the standard, or was it because of the uh, the reverberation, the, 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 the sonic resonance of that particular spot?
3: It's hard to say. Kurt Hopkins, writing for Arts Technica, says, scientists, whether acoustic scientists or archaeologists, are, for good reason, reticent to draw conclusions that are not based on provable, duplicable facts. But at least we can do this. Picture what such a structure with such an acoustical profile would have meant experientially to visitors. The human imagination values form. The circular form of Stonehenge and the relationship of points therein must have been lent an otherworldly dynamic by the special character of its sound.
1: Indeed, and again, I think, so much of that is, is so easy to overlook in our modern environment where we're just surrounded by by uh, environments that are artificial and create uh, ultimately artificial sound experiences. And then, you know, every album or SoundCloud file that we've ever pumped into our head mm-hmm. to augment our experience of reality or even to augment our experience of another artificial reality. I mean, that's how crazy our modern experience is. We're listening to artificial soundscapes while we plug our head into a, a book or or, or, play, or playing a video game or maybe we're watching a separate film. All of this is going on. Uh, it, it's easy to lose track of what artificial sound and artificial stimuli would have meant to early people.
3: Well, and I was even thinking about what it means to us now and how important it is. And we plumbed this a little bit in our episode on time and perception and music and how we can so easily alter it. And we try to do that. We try to alter our day-to-day experience and find some meaning in it through art, through music. So it would make sense that if you were devoid of of the music that we know today, that this would become exponentially important in your world as as Uh an early human.
1: Indeed. Now, in, in closing, we want to we want to lead out here with a great example of, uh, of almost modern archaeoacoustics, if that makes sense. Uh, kind of a modern take on some of these uh, presumed ancient practices of uh, utilizing the the natural acoustic properties of caves. Uh, I'm talking about the Great Stalac Pipe Organ, um, and you'll find this in uh, Lari Caverns of Virginia. This uh, w- what we're talking about here is. Arguably the largest musical instrument in the world, mm-hmm. because um, instead of using pipes, this organ is wired to a uh, little soft rubber mallets that gently strike stalactites of varying lengths and thickness. So it looks like when, when you look up a picture of this, it looks like something that the Phantom of the Opera or, you know, Vincent Price is yeah. is Dr. Fibes would play because it's in a cave. And here's this this sort of old time, like, you know, 1950s uh, organ. Um you play the keys, little mount, strike the stalactites. But to achieve the kind of per- precise musical scale you need to actually play the organ, the chosen stalactites uh, cover a range of over uh, 3.5 acres. But since you're in this enclosed cave environment, you can hear the music uh, throughout.
3: Yeah, this organ was invented and built in 1954 by Leland Sprinkle, a mathematician <laughs> and electronic scientist. And it took him over three years to complete it. We're talking about looking at each of those stalactites and uh, trying to figure out their thickness and how much they're going to conduct sound, and then wiring up over five miles of these chosen stalactites to create this network for the organ.
1: It's crazy. I mean, I'm I'm in recent years I've 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 gotten big on the idea that you know cave environments are are special and we shouldn't mess with them too much. But if you're going to mess with the cave environment, I guess turn it into <laughs> an amazing pipe organ. Um, Sprinkle, and this is interesting, too. I was reading this, uh, of, of all places, on uh, uh, DJ Foods' mm-hmm. blog. Uh, he has a f- fabulous blog about uh, music and comics and pop culture stuff. But uh, he mentioned uh, that uh, Sprinkle got the idea for this after his son banged his head on a stalactite and it rung with a, quote, pleasant sound.
3: I love it. Yeah. I love people like Leland Sprinkle, who's <laughs> like, and now I can create the world's largest instrument underground. Yeah. Using stalactites.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, it, and apparently they used to, you could buy uh, vinyl records of music, uh, that, that, uh, that was produced using this pipe organ. And in 2011, the Finnish-Swedish uh, music collective uh, Pepe Deluxe, Actually became the first artist to write and record uh, an original composition on uh, the great Stalactite pipe organ uh, and you can find that out the name of the find that out there the name of the album is uh queen of the wave and uh, and also you can just look up d j food's uh, post about it. I believe he has an embedded soundcloud I'll be sure to link to that as well as to some other of the uh the interesting articles we've discussed here in the landing page for this podcast episode
3: all right what do you guys think um when it comes to archaeoacoustics is this just the old pattern recognition of the mind mm-hmm. or is this intentional ritualized landscapes
1: yeah or is it you know is it somewhere in between yeah. we'd love to hear from everybody uh it, it's certainly an issue that that people seem to have strong opinions about um where are you going to find us well, you're going to find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our our website. That's our mother page. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, our blog posts, our videos, links out to our various social media accounts.
3: And if you uh, would like to send us a missive, please do. We like to hear from you guys a lot. You can send us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Thank um.
2: you.
5: Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.